Welcome to Bending the Arc, a podcast series that explores the everyday work of creating inclusive, equitable, and racially just communities. I'm Mark Joseph, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. I host and produce this podcast along with my colleagues at the National Initiative on Mixed Income Communities at Case Western Reserve University. In this episode, we'll be talking with Frankie Blackburn and Bill Trainer of Trusted Space Partners, a consulting firm they created in 2011 to promote what they called community network building, a highly effective way to strengthen relationships and build social support across lines of difference. For the past several years, they've been deploying their philosophy and techniques in mixed income development efforts. Our team has several collaborative efforts with Frankie and Bill around the country, and it's been a privilege and a thrill to be on the front lines with them as they have helped resident leaders, real estate executives, property managers, service providers, and others to design and advance creative community building efforts. Prior to co-founding Trusted Space Partners, Frankie was the founder and executive director of Impact Silver Spring for 11 years, and she built a new multiracial mixed income network of over a thousand people in Silver Spring, Maryland. Frankie has over 30 years of experience in public interest law, affordable housing, community development, and public and nonprofit management. Prior to launching Trusted Space Partners, Bill was the founder and executive director of Lawrence Community Works, an initiative to rebuild the struggling city of Lawrence, Massachusetts, his hometown. Bill also has over 30 years of experience in community development and community organizing, working in urban areas throughout the U.S. Frankie and Bill are treasured colleagues and mentors who have transformed my understanding of community change. And I'm very excited to be able to have them share their insights and experiences with you. Frankie Blackburn and Bill Trainer, welcome to Bending the Arc. Thank you. Hi. Good to be here. Great yeah, to have you all great. here. Thanks for taking the time. So let's start by learning a little more about each of you. I've given the audience a sense of your bios, but what would you each say is most important for the audience to know, to understand your personal and professional journey and what shapes your point of view about promoting equity and inclusion? Probably the most important thing for people to know about me is that I'm a Southerner, that I grew up in the South during um, you know, the civil rights era. And I got to directly experience what I consider one of the more effective social engineering um, experiments uh, as one of the first students to be bust in mm. Raleigh, North Carolina, mm. um, in both middle and high school. And really had a great experience participating as a young leader in that environment. Mm. Um, but the other, I guess the other thing that goes along with that is that I was raised in and really continue to practice what I would label as progressive Christianity, um, just to put that out there. Mm -hmm. But part of why I raised that is that my mother, my dad was a minister, but my mother more in more important ways was the minister's wife. And she was probably, you know, one of the best community builders that I ever knew. Um, and, and especially in terms of reaching out to people different than her. Now, having said all those good things, I will also reveal 
when we think about equity and inclusion that I also experienced and continue to experience hypocrisy Hmm. in the world of progressive Christianity and in my extended family when I was growing up. And I've been, and then even when I got to Washington, D.C. in the liberal bubble coming from North Carolina. Mm. And so I've just been trying to resolve that hypocrisy pretty much my whole life and live in it and figure out how to be true to what the ideal is around equity and inclusion. Mm. Thanks for that, Frankie. Never getting there yet. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. I've already learned a couple new things about you. That's great. Thank you, Frankie. Bill, how about you? Yeah, it's interesting because I think one of the things that makes our partnership, Frankie and I's partnership, interesting and dynamic is we come from really pretty different places. So I'm a northern working class kid, grew up in Lawrence, Massachusetts. You know, it was an old industrial city that was failing, you know, as I grew up, um, as most of those cities were failing in the, you know, 60s and 70s. And, you know, live live through that and also live through... um, a complete demographic shift with um, Latino immigration, um, in particular up in the Northeast, um, Latinos kind of moving in in big numbers. And so Lawrence, where I grew up, is now 100% Latino. Mm. <laughs> and uh, growing up in the early stages of that, when you know we were losing our downtown and we were losing our manufacturing base and, and the sense in the community was things were crumbling. And I remember the word on the street was that the Puerto Ricans were ruining the city because the Puerto Ricans were ruining, you know, coming in at the same time as all this kind of Mm. dissolution was happening. And people put those two things together and it didn't strike me as true. Mm. Uh, And I think one of the things about Frankie's comment earlier about those kind of that hypocrisy or those contradictions is growing up where you're kind of noticing the contradictions or the differences between what the the grownups are saying about (laughs) what's happening and what you really observe. And I think I had that experience. And that's where I learned, started to learn about class, started to learn about, about race, and also start to learn about change and how communities kind of get locked into a narrative or a story about themselves that, that can be, um, that can really impede a lot of change uh, and a lot of inclusion. And so I, I, I feel like I grew up in the middle of that kind of soup and for whatever reason was the kind of kid that was kind of absorbing that. And so I've spent my time as a community organizer and community builder, kind of like Frankie, trying to resolve some of those contradictions um, about about uh, place and about uh, race and about leadership and about what it takes to kind of move and lead uh, change uh, in, in, in a local community. Thanks, Bill. I think the audience is already beginning to realize that uh, these are two folks we absolutely want on the front lines <laughs> as we move into 2021 uh, with the work that we need to do in our country because you've been you've been wrestling with it for so long. Uh, let's also clear up a mystery because you guys have referred to each other as partners and the audience is probably wondering, oh, wait a second, well, exactly what kind of partners are we talking about here? So yes, audience, uh, Bill and Frankie are life partners, uh, loving life partners, and uh, they're also business partners uh, and they, they are truly a dynamic duo. Um, and along those lines, both of you uh, had, you know, independent life trajectories leading major organizations. And then as your life partnership formed, uh, you also launched a business partnership with Trusted Space Partners. So let's hear a little bit more about this consulting firm you've created. 
Uh, your tagline is designing pivotal moments for community change. So what's the kind of core philosophy that led you to create Trusted Space Partners? And what roles do you and your other teammates play in uh, community change efforts? Well, first and foremost, I think we start with the belief or the understanding, at least from our perspective, that this long-term change that we all are seeking around race and inclusion has to start in geographic place where people are living, working, hanging out together and seeing each other. And, and then I think where we go next is that this change process is on multiple levels, this deep transformative change process. It definitely has to be something individual mm-hmm. um, that we were always working on ourselves, but we were also striving to understand what it means to relate to each other as human beings across these big differences that we have. And then, then in that process, how we then forge the kind of, um, you know, collaborative um, change processes towards the systems change that is at the end of the day, mm-hmm. absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. And then, so then where I, we would go next, I think is to say that the primary lever that we have ex- learned through lived experience is um, through the power of a trusting relationship with people that are different from us, people that can, you know, help our own awareness grow, people who can spark us um, to think in new ways, people who model for us, people who we have fun with, people who um, we link arms with for short-term and long-term initiatives, and ultimately people with whom we are building a movement over a long period of time. Um, And then, you know, what through our lived experience, what we've discovered is just how hard that is to have all that happen um, because of so many very complex reasons that we all are pretty aware mm-hmm. of. And and as society has moved forward and as our careers have marched on, I think we've even realized how hard it is for people of like backgrounds to even form those relationships of trust. Mm-hmm. So what through a lot of, you know, rolling up the sleeve and experimentation, both in our prior careers and, and now in, in our, you know, relationship under trusted space partners, we work very hard to create um, all kinds of moments and spaces for people to come together and experience each other and build those kinds of relationships. It's, it's, it's got to happen over a consistent period of time with repeated contact. Um, that is really, in our opinion, the only way to do that. And that is very hard to pull off, um, really much harder than I think most people are willing to acknowledge. So it takes a lot of creativity and, you know, un- ingenuity and, and stick to itness and follow up with mm-hmm. people. And, and so we, we're, you know, we're still learning. Uh, always, we found some things that work, but you know, right now, as you know, as we continue to build out this enterprise, we're always just seeking that next situation, that next group of people that want to experiment and innovate with us around how to do this better. It's really helpful, Frankie and Bill. I wonder if you could just help add some concreteness uh, for folks who are just trying to get their heads around what exactly you all would do. So, if they were going to engage you. 
like who might you be working with and what exactly kind of work might you be doing to promote Mm -hmm. this trust building that Frankie was talking about? Could you just take like a short minute and, and give a sense of that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think we're most comfortable and I think most productive working, innovating practices at the front line. So working right alongside folks that are kind of doing the work, whether it's a, a housing community, the site team or, or um, a, a, a community development corporation, you know, working with their staff um, and really helping them understand, you know, why they're why they want to you know, do any form of community engagement or mobilization work or community building work. Um, and then, and then really figuring out like, what do you do on a Tuesday, on a Saturday to kind of keep that going? Um, we have a different take and I know we'll get into that in, uh, in, a, in a bit about how to do this work. Um, and, um, and it takes, uh, you know, it takes teams of people to do it well. And so, um, so we're working with the front line. we're working to kind of help form teams and keep those teams together. But I think the other thing that we do well is help institutions, whether that's the kind of the big um, nonprofit or for-profit housing developer, you know, with 10,000 units around the country or a a cap agency, a community action agency locally, helping the leadership of those organizations really think about what kind of transformative change they want to be part of. So, and how they can be leading that um, through um, you know, what, what is for them also a tough environment to kind of do things differently and kind of take some chances and, and, and try some new, new methods. So, so helping them kind of stay in the game and kind of lead from their vantage point while supporting the local um, uh, site team so that we have this kind of lived experience of trying things mm-hmm. and learning directly from that lived experience. So, so we try to work on both ends of that mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. Where, where that's possible. And I think that's, those are the best situations that we have. Yeah. And I want to push that just a step further. One of the things I've, you know, I've been able to watch you all since 2011, uh, the evolution of Trusted Space Partners. And I've seen you um, really evolve in your own thinking about the kind of work that you really want to do, the, the kind of situations, right? The circumstances that are right for what you have to offer. And conversely, the situations that aren't. Uh, that's not the fertile soil for your work. Uh, And you're at the stages of your career where you've been explicit about (laughs) wanting to maximize the hours in the day that you're spending, feeling like you're really aligned with the spaces you're working in and not doing work just to do work. So I'm just wondering, you know, here we are, outset of 2021, a moment of such heightened economic, racial, political polarization as I mentioned before, it seems like your experience, your insights are needed now more than ever. So you got to be even more selective in where to deploy. And you're probably in more demand, uh, given what you have. So what types of engagements get you most excited these days? What are the situations where you feel like, yes, this this is where we can dig in. This is this is where we could really have the kind of impact we want to have. Bill, can I come back to you on that? Yeah, and of course, you know, we all know this this year, um, over the last seven, eight months, there's just so much to unpack about the new world that we're in. And so we're, you know, we can't help but see this work <laughs> in the context of that, because initially when the COVID, when the pandemic hit, there's a lot of questions about whether we'd have any work at all mm. for a period of time, because our work, of course, is about bringing people together in real time, real place. We're learning a lot in seven months about 
our, about our culture, about our economy, about our uh, how we get together in community. Um, you know, we're learning some harsh lessons about the failure of our institutions, you know, in a moment like this and the political infrastructure and the political leadership to rise to these challenges and the impact of social media to kind of amplify confusion and dislocation and distrust and, and how disconnected the world of capital is from the world of work and place and country. So we're learning mm. so much about everything really quickly. So that's, it's exciting. It's scary. Um, but, you know, we, as kind of network builders, we're always interested in space. We look at space as kind of, and I mean the kind of the um, open moments um, that are available to kind of make change. Mm. Right. So we have the most open kind of moment <laughs> in history that we've, any of us have experienced in our lifetime where a lot of questions are out there about mm. what, what we should do and how should we do it? So, so this is an exciting moment. We're having really exciting conversations about, about, about uh, how to do this work in community. And, um, you know, all those lessons, we're at the beginning of kind of understanding this stuff. So it's exciting, but there's also a lot of unknowns. And I think we're right now, like our perspective is an ideal engagement is with a company or organization that really understands that, um, we have a moment of opportunity right now yeah. um, to, to move change at a faster pace than yeah. we've, we probably would have been able to do that. And, and, and that it's a long and exciting process when you're involved in transformative change, it's an arc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and yes, it takes time, but, but things happen also in a very dramatic fashion. Um, uh, and, and also a company or organization that understands that its best wisdom for guiding that change is going to come from their own lived experience. So we're really interested in how companies or organizations um, in this moment of kind of great learning and great opportunity for change, how are they learning from what they do from their frontline staff, from their kind of corporate staff and every, all the small choices and all the um innovation that's happening, the kind of micro practices that are developing in this moment around how, how do we keep each other safe and connected and, and, and moving forward. All of that stuff is really um, a great fodder for, for kind of building new approaches and new practices and new spaces for, for change. So, so organizations that are, you know, kind of seeing the moment, understanding that they have an opportunity to change, kind of understand that transformative change is an arc, takes a, a period of time to go through, but also our understanding that um, uh, a lot of what, a lot of the clues and and, and um, signals about how to do this work in the future are going to come directly from the work that they do. Mm-hmm. So building learning communities in helping those organizations think about how to build that infrastructure for connection and learning internally. It's great, Bill. And uh, in a moment, we're going to go to the city of Pittsburgh and talk about one such organization that you've uh, you've discovered a few years back and have really dug in with uh, to great effect. So we'll be able to to ground what you just said for the audience in a, a particular company's uh, experience. Let's turn to your essay uh, that you wrote for the What Works volume, which was titled A Call for Property Management Transformation to Meet the Challenges of Mixed-Income Communities. And early in the essay, you lay out some key arguments 
about this transformation that you all are, are calling for, appealing for. It's a call to action uh, to transform the property management industry. So, for example, you make a comparison between, on the one hand, quote, the huge human and financial resources committed to bricks and mortar development, the real estate, the physical side of this, with, on the other hand, the limited ingenuity and investment devoted to sorting out the complex human aspects of daily operations and community building in contexts where residents come from very different cultural and class backgrounds. Frankie, what's the key point here? First of all, I just want to make sure before I answer this that I want to acknowledge there are a lot of um, wonderful, dedicated people in the property management industry that are creative and committed. <laughs> so I want to make sure I everyone hears me. But I think as an industry, and I, I have been in the industry, we both have our, our entire careers. I spent the first 20 years deep in the affordable housing development side to begin with. And, and the advocacy side. And it took me a long time to really understand just how big of a load it is just to, to get the, um, the resources um, to build, then to you know make the deal, to deal with NIMBYism. All those things are just such a big um, burden that as organizations have developed in terms of their path and, and as housing development organizations, they have um, just really been burnt out by the time they get the unit built. And that's just such a mistake because we are talking about trying to bring people together in these communities that are, um, first of all, very different from one another often. And secondly, many of them are coming from living life in a very oppressive environment and bringing a bunch of trauma with them. And then on top of that, we've layered... Um, this highly regulatory process of accountability that makes people feel like they're living in a prison sometimes, really, mm-hmm. through all the research and the unit inspections and all of that, right? Um, and so when we as real you know, housing developers say, oh my God, finally, I got the building built. Here, just take it, Mr. Property Manager or Ms. Property Manager. And, and for the most part, they're handing over to third-party entities that haven't been part of the mm. creation process and the visioning process. And unfortunately, I do believe that the industry as a whole, um, the I would say what I'm talking about right this minute, the property management industry is antiquated. It's built on this old model of, you know, um, that renters are less than, they move in and out, they, they're not worthy of co-investing with. I mean, I'm not saying that's everybody, but I think there's a very mindset there. So when we, as these visionary affordable housing people, turn over these precious units to um, a group of people that aren't holding that same vision and have some antiquated mindsets and practices, we really do our, our work a disservice. Mm. And it comes to haunt us when we try to build the next community and the next complex. Another part of your argument, and, and it's really central to your strategy for community change, we've already mentioned the term community network builders, community network building. And really core to your philosophy is this idea of, quote, a new network of mutual respect, reciprocity, and shared decision-making. And could you explain that a little more and kind of how that fits into the whole picture? Bill, do you want to 
take that one? Yeah, just kind of riffing off some of what Frankie was saying. You know, when you're poor in America, one of the things that's that's notable about your life is that your system involved. Um, so, so you spend a decent amount of your life energy and, and time, um, you know, interacting with systems, school system, um, you know, uh, property management, um, an affordable housing system, you know, there's all these kind of systems, the healthcare system that you're in. And, and that, that's a different way to live a life. And, and so some of what we think about when, when we talk about community engagement work is about kind of the difference between an institutional frame of how an institution helps people and how, how a community helps people. And so when we talk about networks and building a network of mutual respect, reciprocity, and this shared decision-making, we're really talking about a different kind of systems change. Often in this work, we, we're interested in systems change when it comes to reforming, let's say, the healthcare system or housing or whatever. The kind of system we're talking about is how things get done, that mm-hmm. system. Um, so uh, when our community engagement is really about changing the system of how things get done in community life for impact, for optimizing the quality of people's lives. And so we have to ask the question of how things get decided or invented or invested in. Mm-hmm. Um, how Who gets to define what quality of life actually means uh, in a housing community or in an urban or rural community? Who gets to define the problem and invent and then execute the solutions? And you know, one of the things that's that we've noticed with collective impact, kind of the movement of collective impact and how, you know, that's an important movement for institutions to kind of come together and check each other and figure out how do we how do we optimize the value of what we bring to change into people's lives. And that's all that's all great stuff. But but that's all on the supply side. Um, that's all about institutions getting better at what they do and doing it more collectively together. And that's great. Mm-hmm. But, but that doesn't get to any of the demand side um, because we really think that communities can, you know, communities can make change too, right? People coming together in real life, well-organized, um, can, can make community change. We can support people that need to get um, help getting jobs. We can support kids that are struggling to make it through school. Like communities can do things together. People can come together and do things to kind of add to those solutions. And, 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 and for a long time, we've, we've not seen the value or efficacy in, in developing and mobilizing that capacity. And so when we talk about building these kind of networks of support, we're really talking about how can we get the human beings involved in this environment, in this case, the property managers who, the, who work in the site, the resident, the resident leaders, how can we get them more connected and more functional as a community working to make change in their space. Mm. Um, and oftentimes that, it breaks down along really, really more human things about, is the team functioning well? Do we have a core goal that we're kind of focused on? Um, are we in this work for the right reason and, and kind of, or, or talking about that at least? And, and are we treating each other as human beings uh, across these lines of difference? And all that stuff that Frankie was talking about uh, in terms of the paper and and, and some of the work that we've done, you know, with Trek and others is really about trying to take some of that institutional power and turning it into kind of human centered mm, functionality, that. love that and building an infrastructure and then building practices and spaces for that to happen. Well, 
One of our um, favorite mantras is wisdom is everywhere. Mm. And like to even take it down one more basic notch from where Bill was is that, you know, neighbors can help each other. Mm. We, the institutions don't have to solve every problem. Um, in fact, they often have a much better idea about how to help each other. But, be, you know, because of the environments that we've created, they often are afraid to try to, to do that. So I just, I just want to say that really at the basic level of this network building, it's this idea that neighbors can help each other because they really know best. Mm-hmm. They have an amazing skill set through surviving so many things um, and so much to give, so many hidden treasures in, in these communities. Fantastic. And it's not about it's, it's not about diminishing the kind of um, positive functional power and influence of institutions that do you know so much good stuff. And we need we need the local organizations and we need the agencies and we, we need all of that. Um, but we feel like this you know that that the the uh, we can add to that by building um, out the kind of the demand side, the the, the human centered side to, to to be a partner in solving some of the big problems we haven't been able to solve around employment or education or healthcare or placemaking. There's one more really key element to your argument, and I told the audience before you all came on that uh, you've transformed my thinking about community change, and it's this piece of the argument uh, that has transformed my thinking, and a a word that we use daily in our work with you all and and the partners we work with is operating culture shift, And, and a vital element in your approach is, quote, shift from an operating culture rooted in fear and isolation into one rooted in aspiration, connection, and reciprocity. So can you talk a little bit more about this notion of an operating culture shift and why it's so key? This is one of those things where um, it took a lot of trial and error to realize that all these great ideas and initiatives and even the organizing, what you know wasn't being successful and why, just constantly asking why we weren't making more progress and um, finally realized that there's this really deeper thing always at play in any moment of trying to change and it's the operating culture and it's the operating culture is again just the practices the habits the norms of any particular place a neighborhood a community a school an organization and it's hard to change an operating culture because it is both everywhere and invisible. It's like the air and the water, um, the air we breathe or the water we swim in. What we have tried to um, do is to name that honestly and to ask people to be a part of um, that change process. So this idea of operating culture um, is very present, especially when we're working in affordable housing communities where because of the reasons we've been talking about, um, there there have been um, a series of habits and norms or practices to deal with the fact that people are really afraid of each other mm. yeah, for all the very reasons. And so the, the process of changing is to really try to name that for people and to ask them to think about how we together 
can collectively change the habits of the place that we're living in. So if you think about that, it feels pretty big and pretty hard mm -hmm. because think about your own habit change. Mm -hmm. Habit change is hard, right? Yeah. We're creatures of habit. And then you multiply that by all the people that are coming and going out of a place. Um, yeah, that's that can feel a little bit overwhelming. But the good news is that the way you change operating culture is not to beat up on the current one, but is to create a new one that is really um, inviting and welcoming and positive and in 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 exhibits and models all the new habits that you are hoping that the entire place one day will have. And I find that a really fun challenge of how can we create, I often think of it like as this, you know, big new tent parked right outside mm. the place or inside the place or outside the organization. And we're having this great big party in this tent, but in the party, we're really paying attention to how we welcome people, how we connect, how we do whatever we want to do to get work done in that tent. We are not stopping work. This is not just a party. We always call it a party with a purpose. Mm -hmm. um, how do we get the work done at the same time that we're being human with each other and getting to know each other? So basically, you know, it boils down to having the kind of these spaces where you do a couple of things over and over and over again. You help people get to know each other. Um, you have fun because that's what keeps you coming back. Mm -hmm. uh, you have moments where you have smaller group conversations because we've learned that big conversations don't work. People need to be heard and to be seen. And that can usually only happen in a smaller group setting. You don't bring in a preset agenda. And then at the end, this to me is like the kicker. You have um, a moment where people can exchange with one another, really concrete, um, small favors so that they're leaving that whatever that next moment is with something valuable, whether they really got something out of the discussions or the, the, the food or the fun. Mm -hmm. At least they're leaving with something that says, hey, this was different. I got something out of this. This feels different. I'm going to check it out again. Mm -hmm. That's the key. People saying, let's come back into this space. Because remember, habit change, you have to do it over and over and over again in order to begin to have the new habits of a more positive, connected community environment. Mm -hmm. And it's only through that that then we can look at the harder things that we have to work on together. Because inevitably those will be hard moments of conflict but without that base of a positive operating culture we're doomed mm. always i've seen it so many times thank you frankie so we've put out a lot of lofty big ideas that i'm sure sound compelling to the audience but hard so let's ground this uh, in a specific example and what i love about your what works essay is not only did you take the chance to lay out these ideas really clearly but then you zone in on a specific case study so that your readers and today our audience can think about how this plays out. Bill, I love your phrase, like, you know, what do we do on a Tuesday morning? <laughs> what do we do on a Saturday? What does this actually look like? So the case study in your essay is the Trek Development Group. Bill, you mentioned them a moment ago. Uh, it's a real estate company based in Pittsburgh. Uh, I've been involved in this engagement with you all as well uh, from the beginning and have just learned so much from watching uh, your work with the Trek 
team. And I'm actually hoping that uh, as a sequel to this podcast, uh, we'll be able to have the Trek team themselves come on and talk from their perspective about what it was like to experience the community network building and the operating culture shift work that you did. So in your essay, you point to five major signs of change, right? You really push yourself to say, okay, we've been working with the Trek team uh, and they've been really pushing and digging into this for about six years. Like, what are we seeing? Like, are there, are there signs of change? And you, you name five and you offer them as kind of guideposts to other organizations to look to. Like these are the kinds of things you could aim to see happening in your companies and organizations that would demonstrate you're on the path to more equitable and inclusive community building. So I'd like to share these five signs of, of change in detail with our audience and then have you both talk a little bit about the strategy that helped you get there. How did you uh, work with the Trek team, partner with the Trek team? Uh, what did they do? to help get themselves uh, to this place. So here's what you wrote. Uh, first, Trek's property management division is now viewed within the company as being as important as the real estate development side, comma, if not more so. And you quote uh, CEO Bill Gaddy of Trek Development, and he said, even though it generates considerably less top-line revenue, the opportunity cost and the human cost of doing property management poorly are high. Second, everyone in the company is clear about the common goal of creating connected and aspirational places. And they have a specific blueprint now for which daily behaviors, back to your point about habits, Frankie, what daily behaviors are needed by staff and executives to achieve this goal. Third, Senior staff try to model their expectations for how communities should operate by actively working to implement the vision of a connected and aspirational environment inside the company. So this is not just a thing that happens in the neighborhoods they're working in. The signs of change have to happen within the company in its daily practices itself. Fourth, Trek has a growing toolkit of intentional spaces and intentional practices that site staff use to connect with residents and neighbors, along with an emerging set of inspiring and informative stories of success from four pilot sites, four sites where, where this work has been piloted within the Trek real estate portfolio. Finally and fifth, um, specific changes have been made in the type of person recruited to serve as a site manager. So you've really thought long and hard with Trek about who should the site managers be? What's the job description? What's the type of person? What's the kind of professional and life trajectory? And once they're hired, in the methods for supporting and holding these staff accountable. So that's a lot of change. Uh, and, and I think clearly we can see why those are components of the pathway toward what we're, what we're talking about. Can you just share a little bit about kind of what are some of the key decisions that the company made that allowed them to get to some of these signs of change? First of all, I, I want to credit um, Bill Gaddy, the CEO, for being willing to say to himself and his colleagues that um, he felt uncomfortable about what he was seeing in the operating side of these, because he is a really devoted designer, builder, thinker around the, you know, creating the unit. Yes, he is. And I think the fact that he was honest with himself 
and with his his trusted colleagues was a really big step. So that led to a couple of things. One is they brought um, in property management into, I mean, they're not that, not huge. And so that was a hard decision to bring it inside. And then they made a decision not to, um, you know, grow rapidly. Um, and I think that's been a big mistake in a lot of the affordable housing, private and nonprofit developers that I've seen. So that was a big decision in the, you know, that was about five or six years ago when they were making those decisions. And then a second or really a third decision is they knew they needed a new partner to help them deal with the people side of the business. Um, back then, I think, you know, the term was resident services, but I like to say they avoided the, the resident services trap. Um, because they went and found somebody who had a background in working in social work and with people. But when they brought her in, they created a pretty open-ended invitation for her to um, build out uh, an approach that would be, you know, appropriate and unique and responsive. And she was given the ability to, to do that. I'm going to jump in and give the shout out to Bethany Friel, who's the person you're referring to and who is a proud alum. Case Western Reserve University, as you mentioned, she has a social work background, so she uh, has her master's degree from the Mandel School of Applied Social Sciences. So we're so proud that she's at the center of this, this Trek story. Bill, over to you. The decision to kind of treat property management, um, you know, it, as equal to real estate development is, you know, is not an easy one. And, it's, and it gets to the operating culture and, and one of the dynamics in the field you know, that we've noticed working with a lot of these companies, um, nonprofit and for-profit is that the, the real estate development really drives, it's like the, it's like a comet, like shooting through the mm -hmm. sky. And mm -hmm. that long tail is like all the asset management, property management, you know, stuff. <laughs> and, and, and usually by that time, the CEO and the, and the, you know, the real estate folks are like long gone, you know, they're just long gone. And, and, it, and property management is like this, you know, the property managers don't see that see it this way, but the field kind of sees this as kind of drudgery. There's never really great news in property management. All the news is tends to be bad news. Um, and so there's a dynamic about kind of benign neglect, I think, in in a place like this. And and so we spent a lot of time with 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 Bill and to their his credit and to their team's credit, you know, they circled back um to, to really reflect on why taking care of the folks in these units and the properties themselves in the long term was so important to them. And, and it was connected to their core value about quality of, of, of life, quality of these spaces. And, and so I think when they connected to that idea and when Bill and the team connected to this core idea about hospitality, it was really powerful for them. They could then build, start to build a different operating culture and infrastructure around that idea. But without that kind of idea that really is their idea in their grounding, um, it's just words and kind of shoulds and, and, and coulds and woulds. It's, and, and that stuff is not really, that stuff doesn't happen. So, so we were, I think, very happy that there was that kind of deep reflection that kind of grounded this work at the beginning. It didn't take a long time, you know, to do that, but it was an important, an important step they kind of established, let's say, the role that Bethany was able to play um, from that moment forward 
it established, it created a kind of the space where something like the hospitality covenant could be created and kind of taken seriously by the staff um, and by Bill himself. So, so I think that kind of internal reflection, that kind of deep um, uh, reflection about why are we in this business? What, what are we doing it for? What's important to us um, was an important um, moment for them. You mentioned these deep reflection and, and kind of mindset shifts about the work, but then you just mentioned the hospitality covenant, right? There, there, were, there were some very specific innovations that you write about in the essay. Uh, the hospitality covenant is one of them. So can we share with the audience, what, what were some of these innovations that they, they put into place? Before we even got to the hospitality covenant with them, and I don't want this to sound like a plug for us, but... Bethany did something that a lot of people in her shoes don't do, um, which was she didn't just go to the shelf and look at how, you know, resident services happens and their competitors, which she she could have done. Um, she went on a search um, because she was not feeling good about the answer she was finding and brought us in and and helped create an environment for us to be in a partnership with this company. And I think who we are, and there's other people like us, we're interventionists and that's uncomfortable for a company to bring in a team like ours and to link arms with people like us for a fairly long period of time. You know, we work consistently with them for about three years. So I just want to um, name that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so as we evolved in this linking of arms together, some of the innovations that flowed out of that were really taking seriously these practices of bringing people together differently in very tough situations and committing to them and showing up in them. So that's that first and foremost, and that's what gave them, I think, the confidence to keep moving forward because they started to see that things were be, these tough problems were starting to be not so tough um, just because people were starting to be more human with each other, you know, at all aspects. So all of that good practice and work on the ground level with each other, um, CEO showing up for what we call neighbor up night and things like that, led to the next innovation, which was this idea of bringing site-based teams and really empowering them to begin to, to work at a more strategic level around how to shift things in their community. And so we, we helped them and they stuck to creating a meeting ritual for the entire site team. So often you might have the property management person, the resident services person having a short meeting with each other each week. But this was different. This is the maintenance staff, the leasing agent, you know, all five or six or seven of them having a weekly meeting, both to, you know, do the business they needed to do, but to also value each other. And so they traded off on who facilitated the meeting. They had moments of learning, you know, so the resident services person learned some skills from the maintenance guy and vice versa. Mm. Um, and then they developed a few broader aspirational goals for changing the community over time, which I thought was um, is something that we take now wherever we go is that innovation is a really key one for bringing together the, the systemic change that we're looking for. So that's, uh, that's a big one for me. Mm -hmm. And I think too, that there, there's a lot of moments, you know, Frankie was mentioning Bill Gaddy coming to a, 
you know, a, a network night that we had kind of created. This was around a really tough property, a really tough dynamic. It was really one of the reasons they brought us in is because they were in trouble uh, in, in one of the properties that they had, uh, one of their first family, affordable family properties. And, you know, I think it, I think it, it speaks to, let's say, our method where we are having these kind of lofty conversations about reflecting and deepening your kind of understanding about why you're in the business and all of that, because you have to ground this stuff. But we're also at the same in that same day, we're kind of looking for moments, real life moments where we could start doing it. And so mm-hmm. real a real life moment was tough situation um, that they'd gotten themselves into uh, trouble in a property. And and the only way through it was better communication and showing up in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had tried other ways through it. Um, and 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 so they were willing to kind of step out in a different way, like right in that moment to try something different. And I think that kind of, you know, that kind of boldness is, 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 is important. And it's, and it's also kind of, um, respected, I think, um, uh, by, by folks when you see owner managers kind of step out with truth and, and, you know, kind of a genuine attempt to kind of connect as a human being, like that makes a big difference. And, um, they were willing to do that early on, Bill in particular, and, and the other staff members. So that, again, created this space for other things to happen. We've mentioned the hospitality covenant a couple times. Could one of you just kind of, in a nutshell, what is that? And, and why was that a key innovation? We mentioned, you know, that we started with some pilot properties, but as we tried to, and, and as Bethany and the team tried to make sure that it was spreading um, wider throughout the company, they were recognizing and, and realizing that people weren't really practicing the way that um, had been hoped. And, and and I remember the CEO and John Ganocchi, who's the director of the real estate division and several others, they went out and, and met with a lot of site staff and they realized that the people were confused. <laughs> they needed more specific guidance on what was being expected of them in mm-hmm. terms of how they would should be different. And you know, we, we, that's where Bill was talking about this idea of really radical hospitality. That's really what his expectation is. And he had studied that and believed in it. And it was very different than Marriott hospitality. Um, and what we brought to that conversation was the idea that if you're going to ask people to do this, whatever that is, you have to keep it to two or three or four things. And you have to ask them to be doing it every day. Because, again, this is the habit change part. And so you kind mm-hmm. of. Excuse me, Frankie. And you have to do it yourself. And you have to live it out yourself. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Thanks for that. So. We, um, I'll never forget, um, they came and actually down here to North Carolina and we sat in our dining room table and, and really got Bill to articulate what are the three or four things that he wants everyone to be doing all the time. And that's what eventually led to um, this idea of a hospitality covenant that they, as staff members, would definitely pledge, but at the same time, recognizing that we also need to ask residents to pledge to that covenant too, because if we're going to be in this together as, as human beings, it's, it's a two way street. And, but it has to start obviously with the company and the staff. So do you mean, I'll read you a couple of them real quick. That'd be great. Um, Well, it's, it's very simple and direct. We speak to every person we pass by with a smile and a greeting. 
We ask questions to learn new perspectives and reveal new ideas to recurring problems. This is my favorite. We pause to listen and understand without acting upon a snap judgment. And then the last two, we actively look for positive solutions in every situation. And then we take initiative to go beyond what is necessary or required. So the idea is that if, if a large enough number of human beings in any community are trying to do this, obviously none of us are perfect, but if we are aspiring to do this a lot, there's going to be a lot more trust built. And then with the trust, a lot more problem solved. And actually then cool things can start, fun things can start to happen um, and make this place a really high quality place to live. Beautiful. And I really encourage our listeners to check out the essay because what Frankie just read to you, The Hospitality Covenant, you will actually see uh, how it's designed out as a very uh, reader-friendly prompt card uh, for folks to kind of follow those those five actions she talked about. We could go on and on. There's so much more. I'm going to need to close this out. And so I'm going to close this out as we always do uh, with one last question uh, for each of you. So as you know, we've called the podcast Bending the Arc to reflect the work that we believe all of us have to do. And you've been talking today about the everyday work that starts with individuals that we all have got to do to help bend the arc of the moral universe toward justice. So I want to close out by asking each of you two things, um, an action step that you are committed to taking for yourselves moving forward uh, to bend the arc and then an action step that you would propose for others. You might appeal to others to consider taking in, in their lives. So maybe, Frankie, can I start with you? Sure. So I often say I believe um, very much in speaking the truth and love, but it's always harder, harder to practice what you preach. So the action step for me is to be looking more proactively as coming weeks and months come for my moments of um, speaking the truth and love in a way that helps transform a relationship that I'm in into a more powerful place for both of us. And an action step for others? My request is for you to not take this phrase relationship building as a throwaway line and to be very serious about thinking about how you do pursue relationships in every moment of your quest or your work. It is take initiative, follow up, um, be work at it when it's hard, focus on relationships. Love it. Love it. Thank you, Frankie. Bill, action steps from you. I think what I'm, what I'm, wrestling with for myself is how to, um, in this new time that we're in, and, and as an older person who's been in the field a long time, you know, wrestling with what do I have still to offer and how to best communicate um, this stuff. I think, I think, you know, we're in a time when there's so much clutter out there in terms of information and, 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 voices and so on. And I really have the sense that some of the things that we've, we've practiced, Frankie and I have practiced in our own work and that we try to communicate and teach is, is actually liberating. Um, mm -hmm. I really do feel that deeply that, 
there's a way of working that's human centric that it that ultimately is more liberating for all of us, including folks that are kind of struggling to 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 transform institutions and and to tr you know figure out to really lean into how you know how could I best be a communicator of that um, um, and 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 so on. And I don't know the answer to that, but that's my that's my quest kind of in this period of time. Uh, and for others, I think it, you know, it's along the lines that Frankie was talking about. You know, I wrote, don't be a critic, be a player. You know, get involved in something real with people who aren't like you. Like, get involved, like, do real work someplace. Mm. You know, I think one of the things that's come clear to me, and I think to Frankie, too, over, over the course of our work together is how, is how important lived experience is to kind of drive um, wisdom and choices and, and how and how to both help people get into that lived experience, like try things that are, that are safe and, and, and fair and have a reasonable chance of success. So we're not doing crazy things, but we are trying new things and to, and then to, and then to try to pull the wisdom out of that um, as best you can and try to, and try to have that inform other things, like, you know, without, jumping into things and, and trying things and doing things with real people. I think it's hard to learn these days. We have the, maybe we have the illusion that we're learning um, because there's so much information available to us. So that's a long winded way of saying, don't be a critic, be a player um, and get to work with people that aren't like you. Get in the game, get in the game. Appreciate that. Wow. Thank you both. You are such treasured leaders in our field. Uh, we need you both now more than ever. It's a privilege, uh, truly, of my life to have known you and worked with you. And I just appreciate you coming on the podcast to share these insights with, uh, with our audience. Many thanks to Frankie and Bill for joining me for this episode of Bending the Arc. Their essay on how to transform property management to promote mixed income inclusion it's just one of almost 40 essays in our volume on mixed income communities, which is available for your reading pleasure online. You can find the essays on our website at nimc.case.edu. Our podcast is produced and edited by Davey Barris from Case Western Reserve University's Media Vision. Funding for this podcast series was provided by the Ford Foundation and funding for the What Works volume was provided by the Kresge Foundation. Thank you for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with anyone you think would enjoy it. And we hope you will continue to join us for future podcast episodes. Until then, keep doing your part to bend the arc.